Welcome to the Prosthetics and Orthotics Podcast with Brent Wright and Joris Peels. Welcome, Brent. Hey, uh, good to be here with you, Joris. Yeah, it's good to good to good to be back to do this again. And uh, yeah, just for everybody uh, who's listening, uh, essentially what we're both trying to do is for prosthetics and orthotics. It's a really exciting time. Um, from a traditional industry that uses machine tools and a lot of like uh, you know handiwork, there's a potential digitization happening with software, with three D printing, with three D scanning. When we say potential digitization, we don't really yet know what's going to happen. So Brent, uh, Brent Wright is a certified orthotist and prosthetist, and he works on this digitization. He works with 3D printing and prosthetics and orthotics and 3D scanning and stuff like this. I myself am a 3D printing consultant, and I've been doing that for a long time. And we're both looking at this landscape, and we're like, well, what is going to happen and what isn't going to happen? So because we're so excited by this and we're excited about the implications, but we are totally unaware of what's going to happen, <laughs> that's why we decided to do this. And that's why we're doing this podcast. And what we're trying to do today is kind of frame this and say, you know, what does a, a prosthetist and orthotist do, actually? So this is kind of like a day in the life of a prosthetist and orthotist. And that's kind of we're trying to kind of get our bearings a little bit to see how this whole process works. And Brent will explain this to us, right? And that's right. Yeah, it's 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 a fun thing to explain, and it's you know it's a niche little industry, and you know I I, I hope nobody that's listening to us ever needs us, but if you do, yeah. uh, I hope that uh, this will kind of give you some framework around what our you know little field does. Okay, cool. First, a little bit of definitions. Um, yeah, we hear prosthetist and orthotist. What, what does it mean? What what is the difference between those two uh, disciplines? Yeah. So great question. And the way that I like to frame it, and now I'm getting a little bit older, so, but I would say most people still have seen Forrest Gump. <clears throat> and so have you seen Forrest Gump? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you have two main characters. You have Forrest uh, Gump who wears braces on his leg. And then you have uh, Lieutenant Dan who lost his uh, limb. So Lieutenant Dan would be wearing a prosthesis or a prosthetic device and he would be treated by a prosthetist. So a prosthetist is somebody that replaces uh, uh, a missing uh, extremity um, for a patient, whereas an orthotist uh, creates braces much like Forrest Gump wore, except we're wanting to do better braces than Forrest Gump uh, braces. But the idea is we actually fit a uh, or correct a deformity or a weakness in an extremity as well. So we actually correct for it. And it's almost like an exoskeleton that goes over a part of somebody's uh, body. So, uh, and that can be you know, spine, leg, arm, even heads for kids that have um, what's called plagiocephaly and brachiocephaly, which is just a misshapen uh, mm -hmm. head or a flat spot on the head. So, mm -hmm. Uh, so somebody that needs the help of an orthotist needs yeah. some sort of uh, bracing device, orthotic device, or orthosis. Mm -hmm. So that's the distinction between the two. One is replacing something that's not there, and one is working with something that is there. Okay, and then there's also something, and I always get these confused, I'm asking, is there's also a podiatrist, right? So a podiatrist is actually just a, is a different part of medicine. So they have their own um, 
section. So a podiatrist uh, is typically uh, a DPM, which stands for Doctor of Podiatric Medicine, and they have their own schooling and everything, but uh, they typically deal with foot and ankle disorders. Um, so there is some overlap. So like a podiatrist may send an orthotist uh, a prescription to have a to do a brace for one of his or her patients uh, if they have some sort of deficiency or they need some sort of correction. Now, a lot of times podiatrists uh, will typically deliver those items inside their office and don't refer them out. But with that being said, there are plenty of great podiatrists and orthotist relationships um, that are there. The other interesting thing about podiatrists, though, is they do treat a lot of people with diabetes, so taking care of their feet and such. And so the number one reason for amputation is diabetes here in in the United States, and and really it's creeping up for the whole world. So uh, almost 80% of all amputations are due to diabetes. And so um, those podiatrists may be treating a patient and then they're like, you know what, we can't do anything further. We're going to have to amputate. And then they may uh, refer on to a prosthetist if you have a relationship with them. So that's, that's the way podiatry kind of fits into the market. Okay. Okay. And, and so, You've done both, right? So you're you're both an orthotist and a prosthetist, but these are complete different, uh, like educational streams, or how does it work? So, correct. Um, they're kind of historically speaking, you could be certified as an orthotist, and you could be certified as a prosthetist, or you can be certified um, uh, together. Um, now, as of I believe it's like the 2014 2015 era. To become a, a prosthetist and orthotist, um, it's actually a combined education, so they no longer um, split it up. And so the only way to become a prosthetist and orthotist is to have an undergraduate degree and then go for your master's in prosthetics and orthotics. And then there still are um, six exams that you have to pass if you want to do both, so three for each discipline. There's a practical uh, exam, which is um, actually in person where you see patients and you've got somebody kind of looking over your shoulder to make sure you know what you're doing and asking the right questions. Um, there is kind of like a multiple choice, um, and I don't, I, I'm blanking on the term now, but it's multiple choice and, and such just to know that you've got your uh, vocabulary down and thought process down. And then there's another one that sets up these kind of uh, clinical examples and then it it tests what type of things you would do for a patient if they presented in a certain way. And so you sit for three of those after you do a residency uh, with a a company like like the company that I work for, East Point Prosthetics and Orthotics. So and you can do that with any company that's a certified residency site. So it is a process to become an orthotist and a prosthetist. And, uh, the, and there's very few schools. I, I, I still think there, there may be a dozen schools now in the United States and we're probably only graduating 150 
maybe 200 people a year. So it's, no, it's not a lot. And that's a problem because the need is becoming greater and greater. And is that, does that mean, and why is it, is it just not known? Is it just not popular? Because to me, it actually always sounded like, it sounds useful. It sounds super useful. At the end of the day, you can make somebody walk better or, or, or have them be much more functional in life. And it's a bunch of tinkering. There's some invention. It it sounds like actually it sounds like a lot of fun, dude. Yeah. Well, and that's what's neat now is that we have we see a lot of people that are interested in the field uh, from physical therapy as well as biomedical engineering. So. Most of the classes, I would say over half of the classes now are full of people that actually have an undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering, which, you know, if for the future of our field is fantastic, because not only do we have somebody that has some engineering background as it relates to the body, but now, you know, some people interested in digitization and can actually uh, do some of that just because it's a crossover from what they had in their undergraduate. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really neat time. And the, the real reason why I think that there's not more programs is it is very expensive program to put on. Not only do you have to pay for patient models and figure all that out. I can't imagine how much the insurance is to have students working on uh, patients. And then there's the material costs that go along with it even, you know, basic and the machines and all that stuff, it really can run the price of a program up. And then um, you don't have a bunch of uh, teachers or professors that really want to undertake it because it's such a, it's such an interesting field. Like it is a combination of like what you were saying, hands-on tinkering and that sort of thing uh, mixed with anatomy, physiology, uh, gait analysis, that sort of thing. Um, and so it really takes a special kind of program and a relationship with a university to make these go off almost as a multidisciplinary uh, conglomerate program. Um, so, and you have some programs that are actually placed uh, in like uh, Northwestern, it's considered part of their medical school. And I believe there's a couple others that are there. So you actually may be taking some anatomy or cadaver with some, you know, first year uh, students for that want to be doctors or something like that. So it's 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 an interesting thing. And but I do think that with the digitization and such, we might be able to drive those costs down and make those programs very intimate. And and at that point, it may be very interesting to have uh other programs or other schools pick it up yeah yeah totally totally okay so once i I, so i have to do my residency at like a center right and what Mm -hmm. what do these people do are they are they they then going to set off by themselves and start their own practice or join a practice what's the career path for most of these people yeah. So, so you got your school, you're in your residency. So I'll just say it from, from the East point side of things, you typically are in a residency for 18 months to 24 months, depending on how you want to do it. At the end of that residency, you're essentially a, a, a free agent. The, the, the company, which in our case, East point prosthetics and orthotics has provided you an education and such, and you can choose to, you know, move move on 
or you can also stay with the company that you have, providing that you come to you know all the arrangements and and such. But the the residency, just because you do a residency with your facility, doesn't mean that you're going to stay on in that facility, or that there will be a position available for you after that. So it is an interesting dynamic uh, with the residency. But one of the things that we're excited about with East Point is that we get to share really a combination of of patient care because we are so um, vast and, and comprehensive in what we provide. So anything from uh, foot orthoses all the way up to prostheses that have microprocessors and micro, myoelectrics and, and all that in it. And so you really have the gamut. And, what, and then you, on top of that, the 3D printing side of things. So the when when people that are coming out of school are looking for residencies, my main goal for them is to let them see a whole variety of patients so they have a great education so then they can truly do whatever they want. So if they want to specialize in one way or the other way, um, they can, or they can be more of a generalist. Um, but we, we, we want our residents coming out of this feeling like, Hey, we can, we can conquer, uh, the world and we, we have enough experience under our belt, uh, to do that. So, um, for those that are looking for residencies, that's what I would say is look for a residency that's going to give you the whole gamut of experience because so many times we've had some patients uh, in different offices in East Point have different specialties or are or, or, or heavier in one area. So for instance, our Raleigh office, it sees a lot of children and kids. And I can't tell you the amount of times that we've had residents come through and say, you know, I thought that all I wanted to do was make prostheses, but I really enjoyed my time with the kids. And so now I'm kind of stepping back and thinking, okay, how do I take this I love for making prostheses and love for kids. And is there a, a career path for me that will do both? But without both of those experiences, they wouldn't have necessarily uh, had that opportunity to see that that was something they enjoyed. Okay. okay. And, and are most people like super specialized or most people really generalists or how does it work out? I would say that um, you start off as a generalist, probably very similar to medicine. And there are things that you become good at. And so, and if you have a big enough practice, then you can have multiple people that are good at different uh, things. And that way your patients can get really taken care of. Now, there are some smaller, like one or two person clinical offices, and they have to be generalists for everything. Um, which is, which is fine too. And it's a great way to uh, make a living and keep your skills sharp as well. Okay. Okay. And, and, and so, and there's no like prosthetics R us or something. Is there, are there big chains of this or is it like small local practices or kind of in between like regional ones or how does it work really? Yeah. So you have uh, big, big regional companies. So there's a, a big company called Hanger Prosthetics and Orthotics. They are publicly traded and they're probably the biggest uh, one here in the United States. Um, and so they have, you know, all the things that come along with a 
a company that is publicly traded that has investors and that sort of thing, numbers to hit, that sort of thing. But I tell you what, you know, I did my residency with a hanger, prosthetics and orthotics, and I wouldn't give that up for the world because um, I learned not only how to see a high volume of patients, I got to see a variety of patients, but then they also, because they're publicly traded and you have to do everything to a T, documentation, your coding, all that, it was a great uh, opportunity for me to learn all that during my residency um, and then make a decision whether I was going to stay uh, with Hanger or, you know, kind of venture on. And eventually I ventured on, but I would not uh, give that up. And, and I would also tell that to people that are looking for residencies is you want to make sure that you do get a variety. Um, you know, residency isn't supposed to be a walk in the park. Um, <laughs> as much as I would love to say that there should be a work-life balance, if there's a work-life balance during residency, um, uh, more than likely you're not getting enough, uh, <laughs> stuff in your, in your short amount of time. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, um, you know, there are some small companies that may only see a few patients a day. I would much rather in my residency see as many patients as I can a day and learn as much as I can and compress that education um, to better uh, be a better version of myself once I become a certified clinician. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, but, my, but most players in this are kind of relatively small companies, right? Or most of the, the volume, right? Yeah. So most of it is you have kind of smaller regional players. So you're going to have, we call them mom and pops, <clears throat> mm -hmm. which are one or two person offices. They may have a technician and a front office person you know, kind of a max of three or four people. Mm -hmm. And then you do have some regional players where it may push like 50 employees, 60 employees. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe there's anybody bigger than that uh, okay, right okay. now. And then one of the things, though, that we're seeing is some of the vendors mm -hmm. that used to just sell like feet and knees and things like that to the market are also um, trying to get part of the get in part of the game essentially. So your Autovox and Osers um, are, are actually buying up some of these small practices and they're becoming kind of a regional force uh, mm -hmm. to be reckoned with. So it's, it's really an interesting time uh, to be a part of this field that a lot of people don't know all the ins and outs that are, that mm -hmm. are, that are happening because it is such a niche field. I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the, number of, um, you know, patients we see and claims billed to insurances. I mean, we are, we are barely a blip on the radar if a blip on the radar. So we, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people don't, don't know about us. Okay. okay. Uh, so, okay. Imagine, so, uh, so yeah, we're doing a day in the life of an orthotist and prosthetist. So imagine I lose my limb. <clears throat> what happens? How do I end up in your office? What's the path? Yeah. So there's, there's really two paths that I see and, and one is not necessarily better than the other, but one that I really like is if somebody has to have an amputation and they know they have to have an amputation, it's good to meet the prosthetist or whoever's going to be making your leg beforehand because there's a lot of things that they can do for you to get you ready for the amputation. 
So for instance, I had this, this uh, lady that knew she was going to have an amputation because she had a uh, ankle fracture actually that wasn't going to heal. And so her amputation was scheduled for like three weeks out or something like that. So she actually called a couple different places and then landed on CME uh, for the, to be her prosthetist. And so we were able to talk about what's it going to look like? What's your recovery time look like? How many times are you going to see me? What does a prosthesis look like? That sort of thing. That is kind of your ideal situation. The, the next situation is kind of the less than ideal situation because say if something traumatic happens or you go into the hospital and you have a diabetes or a gangrene of your foot or something to that effect, you have to um, make decisions very, very quickly. And in, in a lot of ways, that's not uh, in your best interests. So what happen, what, hap, what happens is the, uh, you, you're in the hospital and then, the do, then everything just starts cascading. And then the next thing you know, you're in your bed and you're missing your leg or your arm or, or what have you. And that's a pretty traumatic time. And so, uh, and then you have pain medications and all that stuff. And so, and then you have people showing up, Hey, uh, you know, my name is so-and-so I'm from this prosthetic company. Um, we're here to help you transition. And then you've got therapists coming in and it, it, it's a little bit of a mess to be honest with you, the way that it, that, that it typically happens. Um, but for patients, this is an important part is they ultimately have the decision on who they're going to see as a, uh, a prosthetist. So, um, they have the ability to actually, you know, uh, talk to different prosthetists and say, Hey, what would you do for me? Or what do you think is going to be the best for me? A lot of times, and just kind of to peel back the curtain a little bit is uh, companies have contracts with the hospital for these traumatic type of things, or they may have some relationships with doctors that do amputations and such. And so the doctors will invite those clinicians in uh, to see the patient and discuss, you know, what some next steps are and that sort of thing. And in th the patient still has the power to make a decision at that time. Now they might not have it because the doctor is in control of their care at that time. And so like, there are some things, so if you have an amputation, one of the things that happens very quickly is a lot of times you have some swelling. And so they will put it like a stocking on your leg um, which is called a compression sock. Um, and that just helps keep the swelling down to make sure the incision and the staples, you know, don't open up uh, or sutures. And it also helps just start shaping the leg. And so those, those are things that are very typical things that you would get in the hospital. The other thing that is super important yet underutilized is something called a protector. So a protector is almost like a helmet for your leg. And you've got this wound essentially that's sutured together. And a lot of people can still feel their foot or arm or what have or you. And they can, they can feel like, you know? 
There you go. Yeah. So they can feel that. And so in the middle of the night, if they have to go to the bathroom, we've had, I can't tell you how many times a patient stand up and they, uh, they've had a protector on and they go to take a step and they fall right on the incision. And then they have to go back in for surgery. It's just a big mess. So the protector helmet is a big, big deal because if you don't have that, even, even like, People that are like roll over in bed or whatever, or you hit the side rails, it's a it's a painful, painful thing. Yeah. So those are those are some uh, things that uh, to look at. The process really depends on. Uh, so you're going to be out of the hospital very, very quickly. The biggest thing is getting physical therapy. Um, start learning how to do transfers. Hop hop with a, a walker. Um, and just remember to take care of your other leg because that, uh, you no longer have the other leg to, to stand on. And so, uh, you know, some of the things that people make mistakes on is they like, oh, I just want to get over to that chair and I'm going to do a couple hops. Mm-hmm. Well, you do a couple hops without support and you do a twist and then you end up with a twisted ankle or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you really, um, you know, have a situation but you're t- looking about four to six weeks for that incision to heal up and to be able to have a prosthesis put on. Uh, and so it, it actually happens pretty quickly, believe it or not. And uh, a lot of times having that pressure, um, having those gel type liners, silicone liners actually help with the healing. And they also can help with the phantom pain because now you have something putting some pressure and giving those nerve endings and such a, uh, a feeling that they've, they haven't had since the amputation. Mm-hmm. So, and then, so, so, and then at one point, so I'm free to choose even at that state. Then do you, do, do I also get referred by the physical therapy field maybe, or am I, oh, I'm doing this kind of in parallel or, or do the physical therapy first and then yeah. So you, you ultimately have your decision, however you want to do. Now there are like, if you really like your physical therapist, you may say to your physical therapist, Hey, I need a prosthesis. Who would you suggest or who would you trust to do your prosthesis? Mm-hmm. And they may have like a handful of people. Um, I know for like East point prosthetics and orthotics, we encourage our clinicians to go to those physical therapy appointments uh, with the physical therapist um, to make sure that everything is going well for the patient. So almost like a, uh, a two for one deal, as far as the patient will have our ear as well as the ear of the therapist. And then we kind of create a plan together and the same happens with the physician. The thing that's interesting about our field though, is we're kind of like a pharmacy in the sense that we have to work off a prescription and prescriptions can only come from, uh, doctors, uh, so MDs, uh, doctor of osteopathy, uh, osteopathy um, nurse practitioners, and family nurse practitioners, and uh, physician assistants. So they have to, just like if if you said, hey, I have a sinus infection, can you get me a pack?" In the same way, they're going to write a prescription for a prosthesis. Um, and so... Yeah, one, one more thing, one more thing. Like, what's an osteopath? Yeah. What's that? What's that? So, uh, uh, yeah, so a DO, doctor of osteopathy, has all the same privileges as a, an MD, a medical doctor. 
but they tend to lean to more uh, conservative or natural approaches. But they they but the reality is they're the same. But they're they're sounds a bit vague. Uh, <laughs> mantra 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 their mantras are different. So like whereas you know and I, and I'm generalizing here but like an MD may say hey, I'm going to put you on high blood pressure medication, uh, cholesterol medication, and all this medication, where a DO may say, look, man, you're 50 pounds overweight. You need to drop the weight. And then we may look at do, look into some medication for you. But the real reason for your situation is because you're 50 pounds overweight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. So anyway, so you need a prescription. Uh, yep. And that prescription, is it for a plan or is it for the prosthetic itself or what, what does that entail exactly? Right. So the, it's, it's, it's really both. So it's for the prosthesis itself, but then this is where things get interesting is because most doctors don't know the ins and outs of every single item that goes into a prosthesis. Mm-hmm. So we, we essentially create, for lack of a better term, a bill of materials, right? Hey, we're going to put this type of socket on them, this type of knee, this type of foot, um, and uh, these components on a, a patient, and then, and then, uh, and then the doctor will say, you know what? I agree with that as a prescription, and then we move forward making the device. So it is a little bit of a dance between us and the doctor to make sure that we're getting the right thing for the patient. The doctor's on board, and then ultimately we have to get paid for these devices through the insurance company. That the insurance company agrees that the doctor and the prosthetist and the paperwork all match up, so that we can continue providing these devices for patients in the future. This sounds really complicated already. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably too complicated for sure, and we're you know we're uh, for the U.S. medical system it's, it's difficult because, uh, for instance, I have a patient that, um, he's 27 years old, 28 years old, um, a business guy, but he is a health nut, but his, his insurance company won't pay for him to get a prosthesis so he can go exercise. They just say, Hey, you, you've got a prosthesis for, your daily living, it's not medically necessary for you to have another prosthesis. And that's, that's tough. Like, and and I I don't believe that's right, but those are things that we have to deal with. Now, lucky, lucky for us and for him, he's an advocate for himself and we're working through a lot of that. And we have worked through a lot of that, but um, you know, it's, those are things that we have to work with. And there's some other things like in, in our prescription, you also have to say how active the patient is. And then that documentation has to match what the documentation of the doctor says how active he is. And that gets to tell you what device you can get or what caliber of pieces and parts. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Isn't that weird? Uh, yeah, it's kind of, I guess. Uh, you don't do it with other things, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So, so, all right. So, imagine. So, how do I end up in your office? I choose you essentially. So, I walk in, and presumably, mm-hmm. you will have had some contact with with my other physician or the yep. the, the surgeon or whomever, right? Yep. 
And then you get my scans, or do you get any medical information up front? Or yeah, so we'll do a basic uh, kind of medical evaluation for you. Um, just you know, height, weight, um, your strength, your goals. Uh, not only you know where you are now, but then where you want to be. Um, so we like to you know do, hey, we you need to be able to do this just to be. Uh, activities of daily living is what we say to do your daily things. But, you know, if somebody wants to garden again or go hiking, those are some considerations that we have to include uh, in there. So that initial appointment really is um, probably an hour to hour and a half. And we're just kind of getting to know each other and creating a plan together. Now, one of the interesting things about the way that we practice is that we're mobile. So we will actually go to patients' homes and um, do our evaluations and deliveries on site for a prosthesis. And um, there's a lot of value to that because um, you get to see how the patient lives. You know, do they have a ramp or do they only have stairs? Do they have three stairs or is it a flat living? Um, do they live on the second floor or first floor? So there's a lot of other things that you can take in when you go to this patient's home that is, um, you know, very important for the prescription of the, of the device and the best thing for them. So that's, that's essentially that initial uh, visit. Okay. And do then, you look at my leg at all? Do we, or is it just more about lifestyle and, 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 every, and the expectations and stuff? Yeah, so we'll take a look at your leg, um, and then what we would do is take a look and see how everything has healed up, the kind of the scar at the end, if you have any staples, sutures uh, left. We also look for what's called uh, neuromas or hot spots. So uh, we may ask you, are there any spots, if you touch it, that give you kind of a, a zinging sensation or kind of are, are painful? And then... Um, and then that also goes into, okay, how are we going to make sure that we don't push in those areas for the, for the prosthesis? We also take a look at overall shape. Um, so if you can imagine like your calf uh, right now has kind of a, a bowling uh, ball shape to our bowling uh, pin shape to it upside down. Um, but once you do the amputation, um, it, it a lot of times goes through if it's a below the knee amputation goes through the middle of that calf section so actually your leg will look more like a pear and so but we know that shape's going to change which is why you would wear that elastic stocking but it's it's harder to shape a a pear shaped limb because you've be, you've got to get that pear to the bottom of the socket that wide part so we want to so those are things that we take into consideration too is okay can we compress that tissue to create more of a cylindrical shape so you can get into the socket? Or are we going to have to make a socket uh, to conform to kind of this pear shape that you have? So there, there's a lot that goes into just the evaluation of the limb, but absolutely on that first visit, we would uh, evaluate your uh, limb and, mm -hmm. and make a plan for that as well. And then what happens in the second visit? Or what do you do before the second visit? Is there anything you have to do to make something already? Or Yeah, so the, the first visit, uh, we may 
for the first visit, if it's, it's a fresh amputee, um, we may not do any casting or anything. We may take a scan just so we can see the progress from appointment to appointment. But, um, you know, and then the second visit would probably be two to three weeks out. We take another scan, take a look, see how you're doing. And at that point, we may make a decision to move forward with either a test socket or what's called a preparatory prosthesis, which is kind of getting you ready for the, the final prosthesis. So it's a kind of an inexpensive prosthesis that you can start putting weight through it. So that would happen kind of at the second appointment um, would be to measure for that. Um, and, then, and then on that third appointment, we'd try to get you up if we measured uh, for that and maybe even take a, take a couple steps. Okay, but and and so you measure measure. You mentioned three D scanning, but usually you would just mm-hmm. like literally physically measure, or, or what do we? How how would you do this? So one of the habits that we're trying to get into is that we want to scan the patient's limb pretty much at every visit, so that way we have a record of of what the patient's limb has done over a period of time. So that first that first visit is scan and then we can overlay that scan onto the second visit and say hey look your shape has changed uh this much it's more cylindrical what have you uh keep that up or we're ready to move forward with a uh, prosthesis for you of some sort whether it's a preparatory or a test socket and the the preparatory testing like what's the difference between a preparatory and testing because they sound super similar yeah, they are similar. And um, so a preparatory prosthesis is essentially the the most basic prosthesis that you can get. It's it's um, typically with a, a liner or a, a, a gel sock, essentially, that goes over your leg. And then you've got a socket that's some form of some form of thermoplastic, typically, and then a very basic foot. And it's just it is literally like basic transportation, uh, but it's to get you up and going. The neat thing about a preparatory, starting off with a preparatory socket is, um, and this is where you really have to play with the insurance game because some some insurances may say no to a preparatory prosthesis, but yes to a, uh, like the test socket and a definitive prosthesis. But I like to start with a preparatory prosthesis because then that can become your secondary prosthesis and a sh- like a shower leg. Ah, okay. Yeah. You don't have to take <clears> the <throat> expensive one. Yeah, that's good. Dude. Yeah. So you don't want to take your expensive one that has the computer in it into yeah. the shower. Okay. And good. so that's why uh, uh, a socket is so, or a, a, a preparatory socket is so important. Now, one of the things that I love about 3D printing though is if you do, if you make a socket, you can make another socket. <laughs> so in tra- with traditional fabrication, you would have to save that mold to make another mold, uh, to make another socket. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult to have this like shower leg prosthesis type of thing. But I tell you what, with 3D printing and being able just to print another socket, mm-hmm. it makes having a secondary prosthesis kind of low mm-hmm. level for showering or mm-hmm. just uh, like a beach leg or something like that beach leg, um, okay. to get it in and out of the water makes it very, mm-hmm. very accessible. 
Okay, yeah, that's, that sounds really, yeah, I don't want to worry about that thing as well. And then when would I go to the final fitting? When am I going to actually, because the thing is, am I supposed to practice on this thing? Is there a lot for me to learn, like to balance and to get around and stuff? Or? Yeah, some people take right to it, um, but the we do encourage physical therapy to make sure that you get your walking right. So the more that you practice, uh, and actually some of the best practice is if you walk in a hallway towards a full length mirror, you become your own best physical therapist because you can see whether you're, you're limping, your hips are dropping, your shoulders, and you just try to make, you try to make the motions to make it look symmetrical. And so the people that are most successful take that physical therapy very seriously uh, right when they first get the prosthesis. Yeah. So, so, so go ahead. No, 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 no. I was just saying that that's that the the long term the long mistakes that you make long term in this game, I think, are are really debilitating. I mean, if you learn to walk incorrectly, if the prosthetic doesn't uh, treat your foot properly or let you walk properly, I think the long term effects would be really, really horrible. Right? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So having a, another set of eyes, physical therapists and such that that are on, kind of training you, because there's there's going to be some overall weakness from you not having that but the idea is we want to have you as symmetrical as possible and that will ultimately uh give you the uh best outcome long term because if you stay symmetrical you won't have any back problems hip problems and, and things like that so that's that's why that part is is so important but then to to hop into that final socket one of the things that we look for is to make sure that um, you have stabilized in your size, and that's where those scanning comes in. Uh, very, it's very important because what we can say is, hey, you're at the, from the last appointment to this appointment, you have not changed, which means that you've stabilized a little bit, and then we'll put you into a uh, definitive socket. Now we know that that first socket, they're going to get more and more active, and so it may be six months to a year down the line where they may need just the socket or the cup replaced, you know, the foot and everything stays the same, but more than likely the patient will shrink a little bit more because that calf muscle is no longer connected to a foot. So that muscle is not working as, as, as hard as what it should. And so that is where, um, you know, we just know that people are going to shrink and um and we may need to get them another device okay okay and then, and then so imagine so it could be like literally we're talking like like eight months later maybe with everything right i mean before i get a final one or um if you go through the preparatory state now if i have a super active patient i mean you probably talk in a max of a couple months after amputation to your final mm-hmm. socket but if we're going to go through this whole preparatory phase mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, yeah, you're you're probably in that ballpark, the six to eight month okay, okay. range. And then, and the final fitting, how does that work? Out? The final fitting really uh, um, is is making sure that the patient is comfortable, that all the trim lines uh, and how it interacts with the patient's body, that they can sit comfortably. Um, stand, uh, walk, walk at different speeds, maybe even do like some sidestep stuff and make sure that 
there's no undue pressures anywhere on that patient's limb that would keep them from doing anything that they want to do. You know, one of the, one of the things that we want patients to do is almost forget that they have the prosthesis there. Like if, and that's how I know I've done my job well is listen, I just put my prosthesis on and I go throughout the day and I'm, I'm off to the races. And then that night I take it off. Um, that's, that's kind of our, our dream for our patients is that they can have that happen for them. Okay. Okay. And the actual thing, I mean, you would, you would have them the scan data, but you would need to then, what do you, do you make parts beforehand? How do you make it actually fit and everything? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So, um, with the scan data, you typically will have to do some sort of rectification or modification to the scan data. And with the scan data, um, you can reduce and push in specific areas and then 3d print uh, via your favorite 3d printing method. Uh, my current one is uh, a powder-based fusion or multi-jet fusion. Um, SLS does uh, work as well, but um, one of the things, and we won't dive into this too far, but one of the reasons why I chose multi-jet fusion for the definitive items uh, or definitive devices is that it, uh, is airtight and watertight and uh, SLS does not have that unless it's post-processed. And so that's one of the neat things about, uh, you know, for, for prostheses and one of the neat things added benefits of multi-jet fusion for the final, um, socket. So, and then we just ordered the other parts. So like the tube, which we call the pylon and the foot, they come from different vendors. Um, and then you, it's almost like a tinker toy, you know, you, you, it's multiple screws and you put it together. Um, you get your heights right for the patient and, uh, and then you're able to test it on the patient. And then while they're in your office or you're at their home, uh, we have fully, uh, mobile labs to cut, uh, and trim anything really make any adjustment. So, um, at that appointment too, is you're making sure that their level, um, that the alignment's right, that their knee's not going inside or outside, uh, like bow-legged or um, pigeon-toed or any, any of that. We want to try to get them as most symmetrical as possible at that appointment. And then and then we still will have uh, follow-up appointments. So typically, if everything's going well, uh, we'll do a two-week appointment after that, and then we'll bump it out to about two months, and then we'll, we'll start seeing the patient like once a quarter. Um, and, and I think that's the thing that people forget is that humans uh, change, change in size, uh, you know, you're plus or minus 5% of your body weight every day. And um, so that affects how your prosthesis fits. And so one of the things that people have to really take into consideration is, okay, so how do I keep my limb as stable as possible is it is it diet is it exercise a combination of both um those are those are all things that they have to really be uh thinking of um because we have some patients that you know have diabetes or such and they love like potato chips or cookies or what have you and it does cause swelling or retention of water and it does make the prosthesis fit differently and so those are things that we have to take into consideration. Um, and I know you really like the, the, um, 
the adjustable dial type of things. Yeah, I love um, them. And it's just a really those, nifty invention. Yeah. yeah, and so those are all things that we have to think about when we're dealing with patients that may fluctuate in, in volume or size while they're, uh, you know, wearing their prosthesis. Is there like a Reebok pump? Remember the Reebok pump? Are you old enough for that? Is there like a oh, Reebok yeah. pump yeah, yeah. across places or not? So, yeah. So there's actually a lot of patents around that from the uh, 60s and 70s. One of the things that they found, though, is that air wasn't a great way oh, to okay. control the, the tissue. You've got to have something that doesn't, that's a little Drop, bit harder. Yeah. 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 But, uh, oh, yeah, there was definitely, uh, and I, I made uh, traditionally when I was a technician, a few of those prostheses with the little little bladders and pumps, you know? Yeah? Okay, okay. Yep. And, and by the way, okay, you say that there's clinician and technician. Is there a distinction between this as well? Do we? Oh, that's a good, yeah. So a technician uh, is typically somebody that assembles the prosthesis. They're not necessarily... Um, certified. So, but uh, there, and, but there are certified technicians. That means that you're certified to make uh, orthotic and prosthetic um, devices. Whereas a clinician, um, that is kind of general because your residents can be clinicians as well. So, you do have to. I don't necessarily want to watch for that that word, but just know that the 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 name clinician or that word clinician is is very general. Okay. okay. Right. And, and normally would I be dealing with one person? Do I have like one contact and he, he or she does everything with me or how does that work? So it depends on the style of practice that you go to, you know, for East point, we really try to make it to where you have a relationship with one clinician. But if that clinician goes on vacation, uh, goes on maternity leave, you know, whatever it is, is that we want to make sure that you have another qualified professional that will kind of stand in the gap um, to help you through anything while they're out. Okay. Okay. That's cool. And then these two, like, so you have these meetings like to, to every quarter or something to assess fit. Um, mm -hmm. Is it also, do, do, is there, are there consumables on this thing? Does it wear down? Do you have to replace a lot of components or? So on the component side of things, not, typically so like the foot and the the knee and and that sort of thing we won't replace that they're they're good for about three years three to five years unless the patient has significantly decreased their weight or increased their weight then they would need to go to a different category of foot because uh, or or knee because they are based upon weight but there are these gel liners or socks that uh, do need to repl be replaced frequently. And so we try to say you need to replace them uh, every six months. So you get two every six months. Um, but, you know, that's, that is best case scenario. I would say reality is most patients will change their liners out, hopefully um, once, okay. once a year. Okay, okay. But I mean, and, you got to think about it. I mean, it's like wearing the same pair of socks, you know, uh, you have two pairs of socks and you're going back and forth. So that's, that's the best visual that I can give is like, mm -hmm. you really want to make sure that you keep those fresh because that's, what's going to make you the most successful in your prosthesis. No, obviously. Yeah. And then, and, and how long does the thing itself last? I'll tell you, or is that, that really very widely depending on what I do with it? <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so useful life is kind of vague in the world of uh, orthotics and prosthetics. You know, the three million cycles, which is essentially three years, is what where all our testing stops. And so, kind of a general rule of thumb is. Uh, if somebody's active, it probably need to look at replacing it about every three years. Okay. So that's just a general rule of thumb, but man, I've seen some prostheses. Uh, I had a guy come in with one of the original carbon fiber feet uh, about two years ago. And that thing was built in the, in the eighties, mm-hmm. early eighties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that thing was almost 40 years old. Wow. Um, so you, you see, okay. you see the whole, the whole gamut, but to really be, to be active and be successful, I would say, you know, every, every three years and the technology for our field is changing so fast. I would think that you would, you would want to have not necessarily the latest and greatest, but Mm -hmm. what, what makes sense for you at the time. And if there has been a jump in technology, then, then to, to do that. Okay. Okay. And, and, and how much does this cost? I mean, I know this is a crazy question because there's like a huge difference. I mean, what are we talking ballpark in the cost of these things? Like, um... yeah, so uh, a lot of it depends. I mean, so here in the U.S., you have contracted rates for your, you know, what what is your cap of what you can bill? But I would say for a below the knee prosthesis, uh, kind of just basic bare bones, you're looking anywhere from probably $3,500. And then you can go all the way up to probably around $125,000 with a foot with a microprocessor and hydraulics and all that stuff. It's a lot. So it's a, it's, you know, every, everything in between. And then, um, for an above the knee amputee, those knee joints is that is more expensive. Um, so you're probably looking anywhere from about $6,000, uh, all the way up to, man, I, I don't even know because there are some powered knees that are out there that just the knee alone are, is over a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Okay. Okay. Because that's a hydraulic component as well. That's that could be really cool. Uh, it's like hydraulic uh, gyroscopes, and it helps you like walk upstairs. Wow. So it's it's almost bionic, but it, you know they're heavy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I would say you know you see all these things that hey the prosthesis is so expensive i would say that those are definitely the extremes the the average prosthesis um i mean they're still expensive but i would say for a below the knee prosthesis you're going to average probably somewhere between six and ten thousand dollars and then an above the knee prosthesis um uh Uh, it may add another five thousand dollars for the knee, so maybe an average of like fifteen thousand, something like that. So it's 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 expensive. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the the other interesting thing about this though is we don't get paid for time. <laughs> so like you know when you go in for a doctor's office or an office visit or or what have you, um, it's it's important to know that hey. You know, you, when you when you decide to pull a trigger on a prosthesis, uh, it's it's kind of with you for a period of time, and then that person is with you for a period of time as well. So, like, if you get a prosthesis, we get paid upfront for it, but then we're we're um, 
uh, obligated to take care of that prosthesis really for the next three years. And there's, there's not a lot of money that exchanges hands unless there's some consumables that are uh, purchased. So that's what, that's what's interesting is like, if, you know, if you come in a hundred times, I don't get paid for you to come in a hundred times um, to, to do that. It's all lumped into that initial payment. So what I want to do is make sure that I'm providing a good product <clears throat> and, um, and then following up with you on a consistent basis to make sure that you're okay doing the things that you need to do. Everything's fitting and avoid something that's like, say, you know, I hadn't seen you in a year. And this is what happened a lot in during COVID because everybody was keeping in and, and they weren't necessarily wearing their prosthesis or what have you. And then we're in a situation where uh, your, your activity level has changed, the weight has changed, and we've got to either make a new prosthesis or make a plan of how to get you into the current prosthesis. So it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome field to be in, but there's so many nuances that go into this, uh, uh, taking care of a patient. And, and I would say for the most part, you know, prosthetists have very big hearts and, um, and they truly want the best, uh, for their patients. And which is why we stay in the business, um, is, is to help patients. And it's a, it's a, it's a fun, great way to make a living. But I, I would say that there's, there's, there's not people out there that are just getting massively rich off of providing prostheses, <laughs> okay. Okay, that's which, which, you know, I see that in a lot of articles, it's like, we're out there driving our Bentleys and, and, uh, you know, popping, uh, you know, having the big gold chains and all that stuff. I mean, there might be a few of those people out there, but for the most part, it's, uh, you know, just regular people. All right, man. So, so I think, uh, Brent, I think, I think there's a great overview of what, uh, you know, a day in the life of an orthopedist prosthetist is kind of, or at least the patient part of it, let's say. I think next time maybe we go a little bit into other stuff that you do around the office, like, uh, you know, what else do you have to do? Do you, do you have to stay ahead of the literature? Do you have to do materials research? Do you fabricate in-house? That kind of thing. So I think the next time is like, we, we talk a little bit more maybe about the business of this, you know, which you yeah. kind of alluded to. But yeah, I really love this conversation, man. Really love learning uh, all about this. All right. Well, this has been been great to share, and uh, it's kind of interesting to hear everything that goes on in that, but also hear kind of an, uh, your perspective and prodding and questioning of because um, it's great because you don't have or you don't know what question to ask, and I think you're asking some great questions for people um, that will be listening to this. Cool, man. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So that was uh, Brent Wright, everybody. And my name is Joris Peels, and uh, we hope you enjoyed our podcast. Thank you.